0: Welcome to Buildings and Beyond,
1: the podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment
0: by focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health.
1: I'm Rob Aldrich,
0: and I'm Kelly Westby.
1: In this episode, I spoke with Les Bluestone of Blue Sea Development. Les has been a developer in and around New York City for about 40 years, uh, focused on housing and, and really mostly affordable housing. I've worked with Les on a few projects going back like 20 years. Uh, but before this interview, I hadn't talked with him much about the history of affordable housing going way back, his history uh, and really how affordable housing has changed over the decades. It really was quite interesting. A lot has changed in the past 40 years, as you might imagine, much for the better, but not everything, according to Les, which we'll get into. Uh, So we talk a little bit about the history of affordable housing, also challenges unique to affordable housing as compared to market rate construction and where he thinks we should be headed in the future. Here's my conversation with Les Bluestone.
0: Uh, when I started out in this business, I was in a family business, and uh, we were doing market rate. Uh, and then in the early 80s, things were slowing down, or it looked like things were going to slow down, and uh, the city was just forming this uh, entity called the New York City Housing Partnership, and they were trying to find market rate developers to do affordable housing. The, th- the theory being is that the, the city had just come out of its near bankruptcy state uh, in the seven late mid 70s, so the city had this huge quantity of uh, in rem properties that they had taken back uh, during that period, um, and so they had all the land, the developers had all the know how, uh, and someone uh, Kathy Wild was the woman who started the housing partnership had the idea that you know, if you could partner the city and private developers together, that you would get production like hadn't been before. Uh, Up until that point, you know, anything that was um, developed as affordable housing, for the most part, was done by the federal government.
1: Ah, okay. Interesting. And was New York kind of a leader in that regard, or were were other places doing it?
0: No, New York was definitely the leader. Yeah, there were okay. there were lots of uh, <laughs> we gave lots of tours and lots of seminars to uh, people from all over the country that you came to to see what it was all about and how it worked. So yeah, it was it was a, it was a great program. It really was. So it really was a success. A huge success. Huge okay. success. Yeah, and um, it got modified over time. You know, it became very. Uh, it became so successful, the city decided that. Uh, that it shouldn't be run by a not-for-profit it should be run by them and they kind of took over the program the concept
1: oh interesting yeah Ah. so I guess then or now what what are the big differences between market rate and affordable
0: development well back then the differences were pretty huge Um, as I said most all affordable housing or anything that was subsidized, was built by the federal government. And um, in New York City, you can you can spot those buildings a mile away. They were all <laughs> built during this more or less the same period. And, uh, you know, 8x8 eight eight brick was a common material that they used. They had a formula uh, about the mechanicals, and they had a formula about the exterior and the windows. And uh, so when you walk into these buildings, they look very similar, even though they may have been, you know designed by different architects. They had, a, uh, they had specs that they had to go by. Whereas the market rate, it was pretty much whatever was going on at the time, uh, okay. for, be- for better or for worse. Uh, you know, when, when there was uh, a lot of competition, uh, the bar got raised, and, and, and in terms of the quality of the units, um, you know, amenities and, and finishes, that sort of thing, um that really kind of went up and down with the market
1: okay and now i mean i guess affordable housing have you shifted really pretty exclusively to affordable now or
0: you you still do a mix no we we haven't done anything conventional in many many years okay uh, yeah everything we've every everything for decades that we've done is as is, is affordable
1: okay yeah so I mean that this program in the in right around 1980 I guess was the start,
0: and yeah. never looked back uh no I do look back you know <laughs> as uh government can be kind of a, you know a bear to deal with at times, and you know there were you know the thought of buying a piece of land building what you want to build how you want to build it without having everybody in the world you know involved in it is kind of a kind of a nice thought you know gotcha you you know a little public housing colonic so to speak (laughs) and uh so it would be it would be nice to get back to that i think in time to time but um, okay but but i do i i have to say that you know nothing special but i i do yeah i do see the need for people to have their first homes and to have safe homes and, and affordable homes um so that's kind of that's kind of in my fabric gotcha do you do a mix
1: of ownership and rental?
0: Yeah, we've, we do both. Okay. Yeah.
1: Cool. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, codes have standard and standards have evolved for conventional buildings a lot. But what are the extra hoops you need to jump through when you're doing affordable? Or I guess it depends where the funding's coming from, I guess. You're or... Right, exactly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I have to say, though, the, the housing partnership. When it initially started, it was really just about getting the units out there, as many units as we could, because there was such a crisis. There still is, but there was back then, too. And um, not a whole lot of attention was paid to... um, Uh, mechanical systems in energy efficiency and that's it i mean but that was you know those were the 80s that was not really high on everyone's radar but but it was you know everyone back then uh, the 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 world was a very different place there was a huge boom going on in real estate where everybody with a shovel was a developer and uh, so the quality you know, kind of was all over the place. Uh, there were lots of people that got into it that shouldn't have gotten into it for lots of reasons, and and then there are, you know there were people that were in it that are still in it now and, and doing the right thing. Um, but the city, uh, the city's involvement, um, and by virtue of the fact that the projects were their their city-owned land, they came with city or and or state subsidy. Um, so they had the money um, and they were issued by rfp so so for a developer to to get the project you know we had to put together something that was gonna you know make our project look better than maybe the 10 or 20 other projects that were submitted for that particular site okay Um, so it was there were lots of ways to do it Uh, um, and but what it what it created was a competition uh, amongst the developers and and it ended up raising the bar slowly it, it raised it on market forces and then uh, after a while the city started in, uh putting in its own requirements into into the uh, RFP so they raised the bar you know uh, statutorily
1: okay um, and that's still the case
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's still the case. Very much the case. In fact, maybe a little too much the case now. Um, uh, You know, there's there's always the city on. You know, building housing. You know, it's a it's a process. It's basically a math equation. It's a math problem. You, you, you know, here, here's your land cost, here are your development, your construction costs, here are your operational costs, and you have to put all those numbers together and come out to a place where it works. Um, when you start to, when those numbers start to get skewed either by market forces, you know, such as, uh, you know, shortages of material or, or, you know, huge increases or lack of labor, you know then what happens is in order to build that same unit, the city has to come up with more money or you have to reduce the cost some other way uh, so the, the, you're constantly moving these equations but what's happened um you know there's been a, a big push now to sustainability and energy efficiency uh in the eyes of the city and rightly so uh however, you know there's always the rub is that you know you know is it better to have Uh, 100 units at the absolute premium standard in efficiency and sustainability or to have 200 units that's maybe at you know 60 or 70 or 80 percent of the the that gold standard
1: so i i've heard that before like you know do we need to build affordable housing does it need to be the best does it need to be passive house does it need to be lead platinum i have not the margins i have heard like are more in the five percent range. Like, do we need do we need to spend five percent more to make super premium quality affordable housing, or we can we make five percent more housing units that is really good
0: affordable housing? But I mean, do you have a sense for for kind of that? Well, that five percent. The 5% is a moving number. I mean, that, you know, sure. 5% in good times, you know, when all of a sudden there are tariffs on everything that comes into this country uh-huh. and labor is not available and you're dealing with, you know, construction a la COVID, um, that 5% is not 5% anymore. It's not, Now it's 10% or 15% or 20%. Um, you know, there was a period, you know, I can remember... It, um, when all of the plywood that was being man- this is going back some decades but but I can remember that all of the plywood that was being manufactured in the United States was going to China because China uh-huh. was in such a growth spurt and they had so much demand that the manufacturers could get, you know, so much more money for it in China than in the US that it was like almost impossible to get a piece of plywood uh, and the prices were absolutely crazy. Um, wow. So th- those things still happen. Those kind of commodity, you know. Right now we have huge lumber tariffs. Uh, the uh, the government just uh, imposed aluminum tariffs on Canada as well, uh, coming from Canada. So you know it's it, it that number, the five percent, is constantly moving. So it's it, it. But the the requirements of you know the people that are running these housing programs don't always account for that and you know we want what we want and we want it now and you know don't really always understand you know the effects
1: but but is that a new issue or is it maybe exaggerated now or it's just the
0: um it's well it's just um I, I think their appetite has increased. <laughs> okay. They're, I think they, okay. you know, they, they wanted what, you know, I mean, the government always had, you know, its requirements. Of, you know, you're they're putting in the land, they're putting in the money, and rightfully, you know, they should get what they want out of it. Um, but I think with the, the dawning or the the wakening of people's sustainability uh, consciousness, um, the government has, like, jumped on that bandwagon and is now... Uh, Kind of it, it, it gone over the top in in some ways at some points in time, and and this changes by the way from administration to administration. You know, uh-huh. this is this. You know, the other thing to throw into that mix is that every four to eight years, you know, you take the deck of cards and you throw it up in the air and and start all over again because mm-hmm. there's a new set of elected officials. that will each with a different agenda and each with different priorities. So. Uh, it's, it, 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 the, the, there's not as much flexibility, um, in, in my mind in government to, to account for what's going on in the world. Uh, it's, it's, we, we want what we want and, um, and sometimes they can get it because they can find the financing, the subsidies. But I mean, like I said, you know, we have to guarantee rents if we're selling, if we're renting an apartment. We can't raise it a penny to account for uh, any increase in costs, regardless of what they are. So if the costs go up from you know over a period of time, then the government has to usually make up the difference. because um, there's no simple other way to do it? Interesting. Okay. So,
1: yeah, so I, I think a lot of the regulators, a lot of the agencies, a lot of the funding organizations are uh, starting to tie or, or institute some programmatic requirements. And and you've done a lot. I think it was tw- just about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was just about 20 years ago when I started working for Steven Winner Associates. One of the first projects I worked on was uh, one of yours, Melrose, mm. one of the Melrose projects in the mm. Bronx, mm-hmm. and I think it was it was one of the first Energy Star affordable projects in the it was city, the first state
0: in, the first in the state.
1: Okay, okay, yeah, and, and and you've done many more since you've done certainly lead buildings and uh, enterprise green communities. Passive house. I think you said you were working on. We're working on
0: a a passive house building
1: now. Yes. Okay, so you're not a stranger to many of these programs. No. What are a couple of the real innovations, program-wise, that resulted in better buildings? And then also, what are the couple (laughs) big stumbling blocks or or uh, annoyances that are just really hard to meet, or hard to, or require a lot of money, or require a lot of effort or
0: coordination? Um, I think getting back to basics is probably been in my mind the the best way you know to to improve the quality and improve the efficiency the technology uh, as with all technology is you know gets issued and gets put out there you know maybe 10 years before we really understand how to use it Um, Mm. or we understand what it you know it's good points and bad points are I mean I can't tell you how many times we've used new products that are, you know, everybody said we're the best and this and that, and so much better than that, and so many less problems, and and then five years later, oh, well, yeah, those systems are old. We, we don't use that anymore because it had all these problems. And, <laughs> and so there we are with, you know, buildings that were built that way. So so that, I mean, but that, you know, that kind of progression is not uncommon. But, but it was happening, it, and it still is, happening so fast and furious that no one's really, you know, there's no time to think or to get real track records. Everyone just throws these i concepts and products to market and expects everyone to adopt them and um, and the government buys into a, a lot of you know hook line and sinker without really you know getting getting tested and proven not a lot of data sometimes uh, is
1: there an example that you can cite without besmirching some somebody uh,
0: Oh, uh, I mean, uh, roofing systems, boiler okay. controls. I mean, you, you name it. Um, uh, e- even, even uh, I'll give, so I'll give you one basic thing. We used to use uh, regularly for all of our rental buildings um, that were hydronically heated, we used to use these big cast iron sectional boilers. Um, and then somebody said, you know... That's really old, you know you really shouldn't be doing you should really be going with modular boilers, right, so we went and everybody shifted over to modular boilers smaller uh the the thinking was that you know they were smaller boilers, and you 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 uh linked them up in series, and so they would come on one after the other as demand required so except then. Years later, it was found out that, in fact, you're running all those water through the modular boilers, and it's acting as a huge heat sink and sending all the <laughs> heat up the, the, their modular chimneys, and it really wasn't such a good idea after all. But there are thousands and thousands of buildings that use that system, okay. uh, and we, we certainly right. did, too. That's one example.
1: Yep. Cool. So, so on the back-to-basics example, um, you know, I remember one of the first you know ventilation being mandated as part of energy star Mm -hmm. 15 or 20 years ago yeah and i i remember certainly in your buildings and many other buildings energy star required us to actually test how much air was coming through ventilation systems Right. which was a novelty it was and it you know for me it, it, and i think i don't i don't want to speak for you but a lot of the builders a lot of developers you know we'd, we'd put our flow hood up to a register and we'd say hey you're supposed to be getting 60 cfm you're getting 12 mm-hmm. and that was a that was one of the kind of yeah that
0: was examples
1: of programmatic uh, that i felt was was pretty effective i mean do do you yeah. Other things like that that's kind of changed your standard practice oh yeah your- yeah the, okay. I, the
0: ventilation certainly was is an eye was and is an eye-opener you know the ventilation is it's now so so before we had the, the ventilation was totally uh, unregulated so to speak it was you know it was designed for by engineers depending on how it got installed or depending how good the design was it either worked or it didn't work usually didn't work um and uh you know so now now we test it now it's required to go through you know much more rigorous design and then now we bump against the code (laughs) because the energy efficiency standards all say it should be this and the code says it should be that and so this this is a problem that we're now running against but as far as you know other things that we um that have changed the way we do business or the way we build. You know, I have to say, you know, there's a, there's a saying, and I say this to people, you know, when people say, well, you know, they don't build them like they used to. And my retort is always, it's a good thing that they don't. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but so take uh, energy star. Um, in fact, it was on a, on that same project that you started on where energy started, uh, energy star started requiring, um, combustion gas testing in fact they did not start (laughs) this is a great story which i'm sure you'll remember uh you know it was not a requirement when we when we signed and and got certified uh signed on and got certified for that development for energy star and then all of a sudden after the project was complete we heard that they were that that the uh Nicerda, who was administering Energy Star in New York State, was going back to the houses un, unbeknownst to us, and uh, contacting the owners directly. This was an ownership project, and going and testing all the gas appliances in in the in the house, the water heater, the boiler, the stove, and uh, you know we got very upset because this was not part of our agreement, and to go and do this and and they were coming back with results that were scaring some of the homeowners. They were saying that their carbon monoxide levels were much higher than should have been allowed. Now, you know, we're buying boilers and and appliances from national manufacturers. We're not you know, we're not building them in our backyard, so we kind of just assume that these national manufacturers are doing the right thing. Well, so we call in fact in that particular job, I think it was G E was the The ranges that were um, that we used we called GE and and told them what had happened and they sent a technician down and they went through every single house and adjusted every single burner and every single oven to get them to conform to the the carbon monoxide levels that were required and we said well god okay then we're glad we got through that and now they're safe and and um we're never going to do that again. We're never going to use GE gas appliances again. And then we went to another job, and we went. I think it was Whirlpool, and uh, and this time we knew about the requirement, so we had the re- them tested, and again the same thing. The, the levels were off the charts, and at that point we we got them. And we're talking
1: about ovens, right? The the ranges or the, the ranges CO in the ovens. ovens. Yes, yeah, correct.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so then. Uh, the boilers were pretty much... All, the boilers, all the boilers and hot water heaters were pretty good. Um, there was really no issues with those. It was really just the, the, the kitchen, the cooking appliances. Um, so when we got through Whirlpool, they they too sent someone down. They fixed everything. And we said, look, you know, we got them fixed this one time. What What's going to happen with these things in five years from now when we're not around and no one's monitoring them? And they said, and we said, my partner and I just said to each other, let's you know, let's stop this, and and we shifted over at that point to electric, electric ovens and electric stove. Just this way, we would not have to worry. It's not as energy efficient um, as the gas, or cost effective, I guess. And some of the cooks, you know, were not too thrilled that they didn't have gas in their homes and supposed to electric. But at the end of the day we didn't have to worry. And, you know, we were making our homes tighter and tighter as a part of this requirement, uh, as a part of the, all the requirements from the different programs, those different certifications. So, you know, this let us sleep at night and knowing that at least we weren't contributing to, you know, the air, indoor air quality issues.
1: And you're ahead of the curve in on that, on that regard, because electrification is, is all the rage now. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of programs are actively discouraging fossil fuels of any kind in in homes
0: yeah and it and it actually is much more expensive much more but it is more expensive to do than to uh to run it first of all electric electric appliances cost more than gas appliances do there's just more stuff in them i guess and uh and the to increase uh the electric service and run the cables to carry the loads for these appliances uh, you know, is is a big increase, whereas with gas it was not. So, so so there's a case in point also where every you know now we're all going to electrification, which is great. It costs more. You know, something's got <laughs> to give. To no be ma- fair, no matter what it is, but it is something's got to give.
1: Yeah, and and on the electrification front, if you go all the way and you don't have any fossil fuels on. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're now you're saving money. Correct. And I've heard a lot of developers uh, who get it, get it, you know, as the loads get smaller and smaller. Yes, yes, an electric system like a heat pump or something might cost a little bit more to operate. But if the loads are low to begin with, and you don't have that infrastructure cost, you have you don't have the, you know, the health and safety concerns of combustion. uh, it, It can make a lot of sense.
0: It. it sure. Yeah. It, it, the tighter you make. I mean, look. You, the amount of heat that's put off by the refrigerator and your your big screen TV and your computer monitors and even your laptops that little fan blowing out of the side, right? You know, you could probably heat an apartment or a house with those things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and on the ranges, I I've heard you mention. We, ch- we chatted a little bit about induction. I mean, that's kind of the high-end electric range. Yeah. That's a challenge.
0: Yeah, it's a challenge for, for the, the population that we serve. You know, you know, Our homes are, are going to low- and moderate-income families. And uh, there's two. One is you know, the education piece is getting people to understand that they have to use cookware out of uh, certain materials and they can't use other types of cookware. Um you know, and causing them to have to maybe go out and buy a new set of pots and pans and utensils and that's that's problematic in fact, you know I'll give you another little so here's a technology that really did work and that really ha- helped us one of the requirements very early on uh, was uh, programmable thermostats back in the day right we mm-hmm. you know we used to have you know just a basic thermostat and now everybody had to have a uh, program digital programmable thermostats well I would say for the first 10 years maybe 15 years that we were using them probably the biggest heating complaints that we had were people who were trying to program their thermostats and couldn't do it right and it was just screwing up everything the heat would go on it would come off it would be the wrong temperature they couldn't figure it out so then we we ended up um, And it was, you know, we had to use them, so we would program the thermostats for people as best we could. Um, But then we ended up shifting over to Nest thermostats, and the callbacks just disappeared overnight. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah, just absolutely disappeared. They were very simple to use. They were people... Nobody, they were not, you know, because of the self-programming feature, the algorithms, no one had to set any buttons or times or dates. They could just set the thermostat the way that they liked to use it, on and off, and then the thermostat would remember it, combined with its occupancy sensor built in, would set the thermostat, set the temperatures to the right temperatures for them at the times that they needed it. And uh, it was really a great thing. We'll never go back to a conventional thermostat, that's for sure. That's,
1: yeah, that's interesting. I, I can sympathize. I mean, when I was out in, in the field doing lots of ratings, doing testing, I often would have to sit and figure out how to set the thermostat. <laughs> it would take <laughs> yeah. 10 or 15 minutes to yeah. puzzle through the, yeah, you know, exactly. press this and that. And, yep. Yeah. So uh, on, the, on the sustainability side, on the energy efficiency side, I'm suspecting that your the homeowners or the tenants probably don't care that much about the labels about certifications. Is is that accurate,
0: or am I? Um, off base? N- uh, you know that's uh, it's a mix. Uh, there, okay. there, are some people that come at it and they're really excited about it. They, they, uh, some are very knowledgeable, which is okay. kind of encouraging some are not knowledgeable but they've heard about it and, and the fact that their home is something that's beneficial to the environment is you know makes them makes them happy so and then other well, and then there's a group of people that really could care less okay okay
1: but it sounds like it's i mean a lot of the program work or a lot of the certifications come from agencies that are providing funding is that mm-hmm. Fair? Mm-hmm. okay?
0: Okay. Yeah. One one thing that we do now um, to help, uh, you know, encourage or to educate as well, you know, is we do um, we do walk through. We, well, first of all, we we produce a manual for each tenant or each homeowner that talks about the whole building, talks about how it was built, talks about the features uh, that make it. Uh, maybe different than other buildings and uh, talk about uh, sustainability, indoor air quality, you know, green living, as they say, and teach them a little bit as much as we can. And then we, wa- we walk through the apartment with and the building with them pointing out the features. Um, we found in the past that when we gave people information that it usually got filed and no one ever opened it up Okay. Uh, until we said did you open it up uh, when they call about some issue so when we found that when we take people through and show them um, show them an aerator show them you know take the aerator off show them the flow without the, the restrictive aerator show it to them with it and explain why that's an important thing it, it imprints on their their minds and and they have that image so that when it comes up later on, they, you know, they understand it. And uh, they say, oh, yeah, he told us about that. or yeah. um, And it also gets people interested uh, a little more in, in, you know, just about general uh, environmental issues.
1: Do you do that with, with tenants as well as homeowners? Yeah, yeah we do it with oh, it. Awesome.
0: every tenant. Yeah,
1: Cool. Is there, with the COVID situation, are you seeing uh, a heightened interest in indoor quality, health and safety?
0: Uh, yeah, in fact, I was on two webinars yesterday. One about about designing uh, designing buildings for seniors with COVID in mind, um, and then another one about uh, a standard called Fitwell uh, about a um, a viral uh, component to their certification. Gotcha. Uh, um, But so, so there is definitely, you know, people are looking at it and, and getting back to your original point, one of the first, the first pieces of the puzzle is about ventilation.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah. Hmm. in the city, I'm, you're, most of the projects, if not all, that I've worked on with you have been in New York City. I mean, do you...
0: New York City or Some in Long Island, I believe. Some in Westchester, some in Long Island, yes.
1: I've been... I've, I was always impressed. You know, I'd be driving to the Bronx with my car full of blower doors and stuff. I mean, the, you run a pretty tight ship, and a lot's got to go right. And there... What are the big challenges? I mean, doing major construction in, in the city, or... Maybe you don't have much to compare it to, but if you compare it to Westchester or compare it to Long Island, I mean, what are the extra logistics, what are the extra hoops you have to jump through to do work in the city?
0: Um, If you're talking about uh, the same affordable housing, government-sponsored type construction, in terms of regulatory, well, the the state has its set of requirements, so the towns have their set of requirements um, that you have to meet. Um, yeah, and they tend to be um, a little more navigable than than the city's requirements, I would say, uh, or that you can approach. There, you can approach them with some of these issues that I just you know mentioned. You know, conflicts and things that need to be resolved. The city okay. is is much 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 more difficult to get through to someone who can make the decision about is this yes or no. But but that but that being said, I have to say. In all fairness to the city, it depends on who the people are more so than even the administration. You know, who's sitting there behind the desk in the building department, or okay. or, or the uh, department of environmental protection, or whoever whoever it is that you you get lucky enough to get can make all the difference in the world. We we did a building in the Bronx uh, called Arbor House where where we have a. Um, hydroponic farm on the roof of the building. It's a residential building. And there were all sorts of reasons by code that why that can't happen. Some is about zoning, some had to do with fire egress. And so we, but we wanted to do it. It's something that we had wanted to do for a while. So we went to city planning. We prepared all our answers to the questions which we knew that they would bring up. And um, we had, you know, sheaths of material and waiting for them to ask the questions or to say it was, you know, you can't do this. And when we got there, the at planning, the the people were so cooperative and, and loved the idea and were so helpful that we told them what we were concerned about. And they said, no, that's not really an issue. You, we, you can do that. We, <laughs> and here's how you do that. And And then... So we got through the planning thing and we were like, we were dumbfounded. Uh, And then we went to the building department and we got a deputy commissioner to meet with us. And we talked, you know, we had this rooftop farm and, and one of the things is you have to provide egress in a multifamily building to the roof uh, for fire and access for the firemen to come in from the top. And... You know again, we were concerned about how would they treat this situation, and it was the exact same situation. We lucked out again, and the, the commissioner who we met with, you know, she said, "No, if you do this, this, and this, you'll be fine." And you know, that doesn't happen very often. Um, but but it it sh- more to the point is is just about regardless of whether it's the city or the, or outside the city it's really about who's sitting behind the desk that you speak with.
1: Interesting, interesting. Was that the building where you where you tried to do the CSA that kind of yes. fell flat? Yeah, I think you said.
0: Yeah, it did fall. F- well, it's it's still going actually. It's it's been revived. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> but but uh, yes, yeah. The C the CSA fell flat. We, you know to provide we tried to provide fresh produce to the, the, the low-income families that were in the building and um, and we spent a lot of time and effort to get them to accept um, the government food stamp programs, the EBT program um, so that they could use that source of funding that they got some of them um, to buy it. Well, it turns out that most of the people had not really grown up with fresh produce you know, they, in that particular community. So they really hadn't developed a taste for it or didn't know what to do with it. Uh, mm. And then the other group, you know, maybe were working two, three jobs to just try and make ends meet. And they were, you know, looking for something just so that they could throw in the microwave and, you know, heat up between the times that they worked and the times they were home. Yeah, boy. Yeah, it was. It was that was a real eye eye opener for us, for me personally, anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, looking ahead, if we talk again in five years, what what do you think we'll be talking about? What do you think of the big changes will be, or ten years?
0: Um, one one of the things that has had many. Um, well, f- first of all. Uh, the envelope of the building. I mean, that really should be, that should really be all we're, not all, but what we're really focusing on. If I had to say where the money should be going, it should be going to the envelope always. Um, okay. You know, you know the systems come and go, like the boilers I mentioned and, and everything else, you know, the appliances you can swap out and um, the controls, the same thing, you can take out one set of controls and put in a new set. Um, but the the building shell is forever so let's spend that money on something that's a passive you know that you don't have to really do anything to it and try and build something that's as durable as possible uh, the, so that the maintenance is you know de minimis um, and um, and then whatever technologies come along they come along and if we want to adopt them we adopt them if we don't we don't but the building at least has that going for it. Is that the loads are reduced, because, and the comfort is increased because of the building shell?
1: Yeah. Back to basics. That's yeah. one of the first things you said.
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that I, I think that I I also see um, is it's had a number of false starts. Is is um, modular. Um, ah. I, I still see there. I still see a lot of potential for modular building. And um, you know, there's a lot. There are a lot of stumbling blocks. There's a lot of acceptance that still needs to happen on behalf of the the, the financing community, um, even the city sometimes. Um, but you know, the building something in a controlled environment is just so far superior to to to, to building something out in the field. I mean, I, I grew up. Um, I started working in construction, and I was a laborer, and then I was a construction superintendent. And I can remember, I mean, too many months and years of standing there freezing my butt off, my fingers, you know, numb, you know, teeth chattering, and, and watching, you know, you know all the trades doing their job in the same state as I was you know and when you're trying to keep yourself warm or or the the converse is you know it's 100 degrees out you're sweltering you're trying to keep yourself cool and you're moving at half speed you know stuff happens you know the quality just has to be affected by that you know Um, and, and also not to mention the weather right uh yeah. you know you know we we build these buildings they're wide open you're getting rain snow poured upon um and then you close them up <laughs> and you have rain and snow still in your building uh while you're building it you know it's uh not a good situation
1: yeah we've worked on a lot of modular projects and i, I agree there's huge potential there it's it's it has its own set of challenges but uh there's really, yeah, there really is big potential. We
0: we, we haven't, we, we've been doing um, panelized buildings. So, yep. um, most for the last 15, 20 years, actually. Um, and we like that system a lot because getting back to the cold, I don't have to worry about a mason, you know, freezing his fingers off while he's trying to set a full cross joint brick that I have to then worry about you know, is it going to leak? Is it not going to leak? So we like that. We we also have been using modular bathrooms. And um, the quality of that bathroom was is so much better than what we could ever build in the field. I mean, aside from the finishes, um, one of the things that concerned us was... Um, uh, the air testing you know because we have to do the air infiltration tests for the for each unit or for the building you know a sampling of the units and um in many apartments we have bathrooms that are back to back and so that bathroom is our only barrier to you know a tight apartment and so we made the manufacturer do blower door tests of the bathroom in the factory and then have them certified by an outside agency And, um, the last job we did, the guy could not even get a reading on his blower door test. (laughs) So, you know, now I could never build that in the field ever. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. So that was a great thing.
1: Excellent. Uh, thanks, Les. Any last thoughts?
0: Well, I, I I mean, you could, you could get me going pretty easily. You you know, which buttons to push if you want, but, uh, But I, I just, you know, there's no, there's no genius to what we do. It's just about people wanting to do the right thing and, and people letting people do the right thing, uh, encouraging them to do the right thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a more of a fan of a carrot than a stick. I think a lot of the requirements and code issues that are now being discussed you know, can be kind of draconian, and I don't think, again, people are really thinking about the, the effects of them. Um, housing is a crisis situation, and uh, when you make things really difficult, and you make things impossible to meet the need, then what happens is people take shortcuts. People will scrimp someplace else to meet, be able to do that, um, or they'll go someplace else and build where it's easier. And meanwhile, the housing doesn't get built and the people still are in need. So I think moderation is always – Julia Child said it best, you know, about um, about moderation – including the case of moderation. <laughs> Moder- yeah, <laughs> yes, moderation in all things. Yes, yeah. yes, including moderation. Including moderation. Yeah, so there are yeah. times when you you really want to go full out, but but I think basic from my mind is getting people into decent affordable housing that, you know, is not doing harm or is doing maybe less harm than the housing that was built last week uh, is always a good thing and getting more people into that housing cuz the demand and need is so high. Um, that you know some of the choices that have to be made, I'm I'm willing to make in that favor.
1: Great, makes sense. We'll see in in five years. We'll see what yeah. we'll see
0: where you get. Check back with me when I'm retired. I hope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much.
0: Okay, Rob. My pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening, and thanks again to Les. More, Some more info about what we talked about is on our show notes page, swinter.com. That's swinter.com slash podcasts. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. We are focused on making buildings better in many ways, in more ways, actually, as time goes on. Check us out at swinter.com. Check out our careers page if you are interested. Uh, we have positions in maybe all of our offices, DC, New York City, Connecticut, and Boston. And thanks to the podcast team here, Heather Breslin, Jade Alvarez, Kelly Westby, Dylan Martello, Alex Mirable, and I'm Rob Aldrich. Thanks for listening.